This is the Olive Wellness Podcast, brought to you by the Olive Wellness Institute. Welcome to Episode 3 of Olive Wellness Podcast. I'm Sarah Gray. The more Dr. Mary Flynn looked into the health and therapeutic benefits of a plant-based olive oil diet, the more convinced she was of its natural medicinal qualities. Mary Flynn is a research dietitian at the Miriam Hospital in Rhode Island in the United States and Associate Professor of Medicine at the Albert Medical School at Brown University. In 1999, she developed a plant-based olive oil diet to help people lose weight and improve their health. Her research has uncovered the benefits of the diet on weight loss and improving risk factors for breast cancer and prostate cancer. Chris Ashmore asks Mary what triggered her interest in extra virgin olive oil. Well, I became interested in olive oil as a food in the mid-80s, but it wasn't until around 1999 that I started doing research with it. And it, it started because certainly in the 80s through the 90s, in the United States and I think other countries, low-fat diets were very popular and people thought that they were the answer to everything. And I really didn't see that for the number of things that they do that are not healthy. So I was I was co-authoring a book that's called Low-Fat Lies. So we did all I did all the research on why low fat diets weren't good, and then my co-author thought that the low carbohydrates diets were good, but they you know they're not. So I did research on those, and then the editor said, "Well, if you don't like low fat, you don't like low carb. What do you like?" And so I said, at that time I would have called it the Mediterranean diet, and I said olive oil so healthy, whatever. And so I said, let me just compare olive oil to a lower fat diet and see what I get. And I was really surprised at how much people liked the diet and they said they lost weight easier and they weren't hungry. And so that launched me into starting looking for research monies, which I started to get in the early 2000s and just sort of piecing together since that time and looking at different aspects uh, since that time. But it started with mainly for weight loss, because I think olive oil really could play a great role in weight loss. helps people lose weight because they're not hungry. And it's a wonderful addition to a meal. Now, you've developed an extra virgin olive oil and plant-based diet. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. So when you look at it as a dietitian, you look at food groups and say, how do you put things together? So I thought that the main thing I wanted was people to use enough olive oil day. And I didn't know how much at that time when I started in 1999, but I arrived at three tablespoons, which was good because the health benefits start around two. So three would make sure you get the health benefits. Then I had unlimited vegetables, I don't want to use the word restrict, but I don't encourage as much fruit, a couple of servings a day, like one or two pieces, because even though fruits and vegetables tend to get lumped together when people talk about health, when you look at the food literature, it's really vegetables that come up consistently improving our health and not so much fruit. It's not that fruit is bad for us. It's just that it doesn't seem to be as healthy. And then I include a certain amount of starch. So it ends up being, depending on the calories, but it ends up being um, a moderate carbohydrate diet. So I initially called it a Mediterranean diet because it is, that's what it follows. The Mediterranean diet is plant-based and includes extra virgin olive oil. But then about 2002, 2003, the med diet score became popular. And that looks at the ratio of monounsaturated fat to saturated fat in the diet, which I think is not a useful tool. So you're not looking at olive oil, you're looking at all food sources of monounsaturated fat. So that's when I changed my name to a plant-based diet that includes olive oil or a plant-based extra virgin olive oil diet is how I usually phrase it. And to me, it's, it's more descriptive. It says what it is. Uh, and now plant-based diets, everyone's talking about them. So it, it ended up being kind of fortuitous that I 
you arrive at the title because now people think, you know, that it's like a it's something new, but it's been, you know, I've been doing it almost 20 years. What are some of the compounds found in extra virgin olive oil, Mary, and, and how do they contribute to health? Extra virgin olive oil is healthy due to these components that are called phenols, P-H-E-N-O-L-S. And there's a whole bunch of them, and I'm sure there's many more. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them that have been isolated and studied. And it is not clear yet which are better than others, if, if other ones do only specific things. or. But there are studies where what they look at is total phenol content. And they will compare a higher total phenol content, which higher could be, there's no set definition, but if you look at retail extra virgin olive oil, I believe most of it can be as low as 100 to like maybe 250, and it's milligrams per kilogram of oil, the phenol content. But then some of the the ones that you buy, the fresher ones, um, like some of the ones you can get in Australia, the fresher ones have over 400, they might have 500, 600, 900 total phenols. And studies out of Europe, there aren't many outside of Europe, but Europe has done a number of them, it's shown that the higher phenol content means more health benefits. So what it would mean is if you're testing, say, for blood pressure, you might have an olive oil with a total phenol content of, say, like close to 300, like maybe 285 or something like that. And you'd get lowering of systolic blood pressure, but maybe not diastolic, the lower number. Then when you move the number up, you get a higher phenol, you can lower both systolic and diastolic, and you're lowering systolic more. So higher total phenol always in the literature has always led to better benefits. And it'll do things like, I think it's like over 500 or 450, you can see a decrease in DNA oxidation or decrease in LDL oxidation, which you might not see at a lower number, but there is probably some benefit. It's just the higher you go, the more benefit you see. So the type of phenol is inherent to the particular olive. So it depends on what you're growing. And then the amount of phenol can be changed by things like growing conditions. So, you know, if they stress the plant or say it's a really dry season, that would stress the plant. You could get more total phenol. So you can manipulate it to a certain extent. I, I don't know exactly how much, but I know that can be done. So that's the area where I think would be really fascinating to see more literature. I work mainly in oncology now. And I, so I always say to my patients, I'd love to see the day when I could say to them, buy this olive oil with this high phenol content and we're pretty certain it's going to do this benefit for you. As it is now, I can say to patients, the higher the phenol content, the better, but I don't know which olive oil is going to give them better benefit, or even if they do. I know that the studies look at certain ones and you see different improvements, but I don't think enough is known to say, make sure you buy Piqual or you know or something and you get that benefit. Well, that leads me on to this question because it can be quite confusing. If, if I go to the supermarket, Mary... How do I know what olive oil to pick? Are, are health benefits pretty much the same, different olive oils on the shelves? I don't think that's that we can make that statement if they are or are not. We do know that if you look at what extra virgin olive oil can do, there's certain things that we know it will do. They're pretty consistent. But again, you may, with a higher phenol or different type of phenol, you might see better improvement. But I believe in Australia, you have a labeling system or like a a tag thing that tells you if it's a certain olive oil. It is a problem for us in the United States because the United States government doesn't control the imported olive oil. So, and it's unfortunate for the importers because they may be sending us really great olive oil, but we don't know. They could be right next to something on a shelf that's terrible. It's labeled extra virgin, but it's not extra virgin. So I've been working with the California industry 
for a few years now and really lovely, wonderful people that I work with. And I, I spoke at a meeting they had in March and I really asked that they start to put the phenol content on their website. It's, you couldn't put it on the bottle because the phenol content does decrease with age. And so now you're getting into if someone takes the bottle and has it analyzed and says, no, it doesn't have this phenol content. But if you say at the time of production, this is the phenol content, these are the phenols that are in it. And then, you know, you can't control how the consumer handles the bottle. And so you don't know if they destroy it or whatever. Uh, but you do know at the time of production what there was. And I said, this right now, what they use a chemical test, which are fine, and they had certainly have some usefulness. But then you have the sensory evaluation, you know, which people argue can be subjective, but people are very well trained to do that test. So I don't think of it as, as subjective. But if people started putting the phenol content, that's where I think the consumer could weed out who gives phenol content. Like right now in the United States, there are certain big chain grocery stores that have olive oil and they won't provide where they source. So everybody knows the source is important. So if you don't supply the source, in my mind, you're immediately suspect. If we look at cardiovascular disease, and um, there's a lot of misconceptions in society about what triggers that kind of disease. Are there any misconceptions? Uh, well, I, I think there could be because low-density lipoprotein, LDL, um, is, is very big in the United States. So I'm assuming it's big in Australia, and it's what people look at for heart disease. And, and that's fine. You know, it has some role. But the level of HDL is, is really important, too. It's not really clear what HDL or high-density lipoprotein does. We do know it's genetically determined. So uh, you can inherit a low level, a high level, whatever. You can change it slightly, but not a whole bunch. You don't change it that much as a general statement. Uh, it's a misconception that HDL can be changed with exercise. That is not true. It can't be changed to the extent that people think it can be. So if you have a really high HDL, you are better at long distance exercise because you have a makeup that handles fat better. So it's a real simple answer to a complicated situation. But high HDL, like for a male, a normal HDL is 40. Anything about 40 is good. So if you had a 40 and you couldn't do anything to bring you up to say like a 65, which would be a very high level for a male, but it does certainly happen. Those are men that are very good at marathon running or long distance cycling or whatever. But olive oil, extra virgin olive oil is the only food or medicine. There's no medicine that can change HDL. There's no medicine that can raise HDL. Olive oil will independently raise HDL, meaning that medicines lower your triglycerides to get your HDL to come up. But olive oil will just raise your HDL. I mean, it's really pretty phenomenal. And I remember cardiologists telling me that 15 years ago, stopping me in the hospital corridor because they knew I was promoting olive oil. And they said, you know, I have a patient that's had, you know, an HDL of whatever for like, you know, years. And all of a sudden their HDL went up like eight, nine points, which just doesn't happen. It just doesn't change like that. But it does with extra virgin olive oil. So that's a good thing. The other thing is that, as I mentioned, LDL is what people focus on. And LDL does have a role, but there are healthy LDL particles and there are oxidized LDL particles. Oxidized LDL is what's going to lead to atherosclerosis, the buildup of, of tissue. So you oxidize your LDL by consuming polyunsaturated fats, which are mainly vegetable seed oils. So corn oil, safflower, soybean, grapeseed, anything that's a seed oil is going to be high in polyunsaturated fats. So that's how you can oxidize LDL. Extra virgin olive oil does not oxidize readily. Oxidize, you know, a lot of misuse of it. But as a general statement, it's not going to oxidize. 
And then extra virgin olive oil is loaded with antioxidants. So you're, you're decreasing oxidation. You're not oxidizing the LDL. So it means you could say like if someone had an LDL of 120 and they only used olive oil, that probably is a healthier situation than someone with an LDL of 70 or 80 that only used vegetable seed oil because they've got all this oxidation going on. So it's not a straightforward thing to say, just look at LDL. I find that not useful at all. And LDL actually doesn't change that much with diet. I mean, people say, you know, don't eat as much saturated fat and you're low LDL. That really doesn't happen that way. I mean, it's not a given that if you use less saturated fat, you lower your LDL. In the same sense, if you use a whole bunch of saturated fat, you're not going to really raise your LDL. So that, I think, all that message, people trying to simplify it, actually made it more complicated because people expect these things to happen that don't happen when they change their diet. Now, if we go back to the supermarket again, and uh, a lot of people, they gravitate towards the cheaper items on the shelves. And, you know, you've got extra virgin olive oil lined up against, say, canola oil or vegetable oil. How do you justify the cost of uh, buying extra virgin olive oil versus the others? Okay, that's a very good question, because what I always bring up is price per tablespoon. So a 500 ml bottle, which we sell in the United States is like close to 17 fluid ounces, that has 32 tablespoons. So if it was $32, you're paying a dollar a tablespoon. If you're using three tablespoons a day, you're spending $3. That is the most you're going to spend. What I think is not appreciated is that the most expensive part of a food budget is what I call animal flesh because it's descriptive. It's meat, so it's beef, pork, lamb, poultry, seafood. That is the most expensive part of the food budget. But most Western countries are programmed to walk into a market, they buy those, and then they gripe about vegetables and olive oil. I'll say they're nowhere near as expensive as meat, poultry, and seafood. But we just, we're not used to thinking of it that way. So on my diet, what I get people to do is to eat meals that are olive oil, vegetable, and a starch. So I developed this cooking program around 2005 it's all the, the main meals are olive oil, vegetable, and starch. No animal flesh in them at all. Some of them have some cheese. And some of my recipes have eggs, things like frittatas. But as a general statement, no animal product. And the average price now per serving is, a, I think it's $1.40. But it used to be like $1.20. I think it's around $1.40 after like 14 years, which is pretty reasonable. You know, So what I did was a program, and we have food pantries in the United States. I'm not sure if it's the same wording in Australia, but it's where poor people can go and get food for free. And so I went into these food pantries and all I wanted to say was low-income people will use these recipes. And if they do, they can hopefully save money on groceries. So we went in, had cooking program, we demonstrated a recipe, had them try the recipe, gave them some groceries during the six weeks of the cooking program. And then we filed them for six months and I collected all the grocery receipts and it was just like a nightmare to keep these straight. But we eliminated vegetables and fruit because they were getting them for the food pantries. So that was too hard to track. But I did dessert, snacks, carbonated beverages, um, soda or pop. And then I tracked them for six months to see what happened to their spending behavior. And they did spend significantly less on groceries because they weren't buying as much meat. Although we never said to them, don't buy less meat. We just said, use these recipes. And so I try to keep my messages positive for nutrition because we're always telling people to take things away. And my thing is, if you just tell them, just use these, it's a better way to say it. And they spent less on groceries, but they also bought less snacks, less desserts, less soda. 
and there's food insecurity. We measured food insecurity. There's a questionnaire to do that. So food insecurity means that you don't have access to food. In other words, you are without food for some meals during the month, which is a really sad situation, but it exists. Food insecurity went down. They lost weight. Blood pressure came down. Glucose came down. It was all these really interesting things happened just because they changed three dinners. So when I counsel my patients in my clinics at the hospital where people are not likely to be food insecure in most of them, I will mention the study and say, People who are fairly poor, I mean, they, they qualify for food stamps in the United States, which you make very, very little money if you qualify for food stamps. You are definitely poor. I said, these people saved a lot of money on groceries and they lost weight. So this is, if you're using olive oil and cooking this way, it's cheaper. So I usually try to get people to change two to three days in a week. And then I find that people like the way they feel and it makes them change more in their week. Mm, that's interesting. How many tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil do you recommend people consume every day? At least two a day, and I like people to combine it with their vegetables. So I usually say a tablespoon of olive oil per cup of vegetables. So those two go together. So it's not like you're drizzling it over things. You're really getting enough olive oil in the food uh, that'll make a difference. Because that's if you look at the literature, it's about 30 mils, which is about two tablespoons, where you see health benefits starting. So the more the better, but the minimum is two. I try to get people to have three, possibly four tablespoons a day, depending how much food they're eating. And when you combine extra virgin olive oil with vegetables, what kind of health benefits do you see? From the standpoint of a culinary benefit and sensory experience, olive oil or any fat makes vegetables taste better. So people are a lot more likely to eat more vegetables. But then what happens is vegetables in general are healthy for us, but the healthier ones are two categories that have to do with phytonutrients, P-H-Y-T-O, phytonutrients are components that are in all plant products and they are different from classical nutrition components. They're different from vitamins, minerals, protein, carbohydrate, fat, because they are not needed for structure, metabolism, or the things that we normally think of for nutrition. They're, they're recently new. They only really came into the literature about uh, late 1980s, certainly into the 90s is when they started. But in the plant product, they protect the plant from the environment. So they tend to be concentrated on the outside of plants, but they do go through the plant product. So there are two categories that are really important. Uh, one are called the carotenoids. Carotenoids give color to plant products. Uh, red, yellow, and orange are the three carotenoid colors. So things like the tomato or red grapefruit, uh, those are the red colors. So orange is, is, is much more orange as carrots and pumpkin and cantaloupe and all those. And then yellow is what's in corn. It's also what's in spinach. Uh, the dark green color is the overlay of that is chlorophyll. So when you see dark green, like in broccoli or whatever, broccoli probably has the yellow color in it too. So the carotenoids have these really interesting health benefits when they're in our body. One of the more important ones is that they are very powerful at protecting from cancer. And so because they can protect from cancer, they probably then help if you have cancer to make your cancer you know, go away or you know, try to fight the cancer, so we say. So there's studies in Europe showing that when they follow people over time and they track them based on their carotenoid, higher levels of blood carotenoids mean less cancer going forward. Okay, so that's interesting information. So it's dark color. The more color, the more carotenoids. So in the United States, there's studies looking at consumption of vegetables. And we really have no good study to say, if you eat a lot of vegetables, you're less likely to get cancer. 
we know that should be correct, but we just don't have that studies. What I think it comes down to is carotenoids need fat to be absorbed, and certain studies show that. Then other studies show that if you cook the vegetables into a fat, you absorb even more carotenoids into your body. So the carotenoids come into the body in the same way that fat does. The particle is called the chylomicron. So if you're eating your vegetables without fat, which Americans do, Americans tend to steam their vegetables, eat them raw, low-fat salad dressings, you are not getting into your body what makes the cancer protection from the vegetables. You're just not getting it in, or you're minimally getting it in. And I think it's crazy that our cancer associations have been talking about dark vegetables for years, but they've never said these need fat to get into because they're still pretty fat phobic. So people are eating all these dark vegetables, but they're not getting the benefit because they don't get them into their body. The other family that's really important is the component that's found in the cruciferous family. So that's cauliflower, broccoli, um, Brussels sprouts, all the cabbages, kale. That family has a sulfur compound in it. So many people do not like that vegetable. It's not something you know that people are just being difficult like kids. My understanding is 70% of the world doesn't like a bitter taste, which is what they have. But you cook those in olive oil. It's a whole new flavor to the food. The component in that family that makes them cancer protective is called, it's a whole family called the glucosinolates. And the glucosinolates are water soluble. And the study is showing that if you steam those vegetables, you lose into the water what makes them cancer protective. And I can tell you every patient I talk to, every cancer patient I talk to, when I tell them the information, they say to me, I've been steaming my vegetables for years because that's how we're taught to do it in the United States. So I would say to them, no, wrong, don't do that. We, I don't know if fat is needed to absorb them, but there are studies showing when they're stir fried, they get more into the body, but I don't think anyone's worked out the mechanism. It must be through the same mechanism that was the carotenoids. But we do know that if you cook them in water, you are definitely getting rid of what makes them cancer protective. So cooking vegetables in olive oil makes them taste a whole lot better, and it gets into your body what makes them cancer protective, which is cancer is what people worry about. You know, heart disease isn't great, but I mean, it's a little easier to diagnose. It's a little easier to work with, but cancer is just too mysterious. So when you say you can do cancer prevention with it, people really like that message. Well, finally, before we go, Mary, and, and as an experienced research dietitian and lecturer, what's your one key piece of advice for current or future students and healthcare practitioners? Well, I think that nutrition is really an interesting, exciting field. I've, I've been in it more than 35 years and it, it never has been dull to me. But I, I really encourage people to look at it from the standpoint of food because I think we are getting close to, if we're not there, of people really looking at food as medicine. So I started saying food as medicine like 15 years ago from the Greeks. It actually, my understanding was Hippocrates really never said it that they know of, but they attribute it to him. But the Greeks looked at it that way. And, and that should not be such a foreign concept, but we are maxing out, thankfully, on pharmaceuticals. And you can say to people, you know, when I start my nutrition class, I've been teaching basic nutrition every fall since 1994. And I say to my students, you know, you could exist on anything. This idea of this white diet, which People will say, maybe it's in, the, in Australia, but in the United States, it's when people say, my kids will only eat white things, white pasta, white rice, white bread. They won't take sauces. I mean, that's brand new. So that's not a real thing. That's just, I don't want to go through the process of feeding my child. So I'll let them just choose pasta with butter on it. So, but the human body can exist on really horrible diets. It can exist. 
But you look long term. You look at what people look like for skin and hair and eyes and nails, and you look at things like cancer. I mean, when, why people get cancer is still not known, of course. But you want to say a person who eats a, a lifetime of healthy food and includes healthy foods at least a certain part of the week. You don't have to be perfect ever. I mean, I never expect people to be perfect. But the more you can do, the better. You will bring to the table when you're 60 years old and you're diagnosed with some cancer. You will, of course, do better than someone who's eaten terribly their whole life. Or if you have heart disease, I mean, like how you spring back. The other thing is, which I think is, is interesting, is there's enough studies showing that changing your diet it's going to help at any age. There's no age where it's not going to help. So you could be a you know, 65, 85-year-old person, and changing your diet is only going to improve things. It's going to make you feel better. It's going to help your digestion. So I think if, if even though clinical dietetics, I'm sure, will still continue to be a big thing, and I, th- I think that's great, I think if people in nutrition really looked at it from the food standpoint, and you know, don't talk about nutrients to patients, talk about food Tell them what they can eat. It's not fat. It's olive oil. You know, eat use olive oil. Don't use vegetable seed oils. And it makes it easier for the patient. It's more practical. But I think, as I say, it only has room to grow because we have to eat every day. Unfortunately, we can choose or not choose to exercise. So that's always a little bit of an issue. But we have to eat every day. And if you can get people to make some food choices in the week that are better, you're only going to improve the health. And that, I think, you know, everyone's looking for that. You know, you have people that, you know, they're 90 years old and they still want to be healthy. They don't want to be in a hospital bed. And so if you can help people do that, I mean, that's a great gift. Dr. Mary Flynn. For more details about her plant-based olive oil diet, go to medfooddiet.com. Details are in the show notes. And that ends Episode 3 of Olive Wellness Podcast. To learn more about the nutrition, health and wellness benefits of olives and olive products, please visit the Olive Wellness Institute website at olivewellnessinstitute.org. Till next time, I'm Sarah Gray. Thanks for listening.